Would you please return with me in your Bibles to that scripture passage that we read this morning in our congregational reading, such a keystone passage for the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 34, the text of our message this morning will be chiefly found in verses 6 and 7. The title of the message this morning is God the Holy One, and this is the second in our series of the whole gospel. And last Sunday, we learned and discovered in the scriptures that God is a creator, and we finished by, by really introducing this sermon this morning, and that is that God isn't just any type of creator. He's a righteous creator. And so looking at our Bibles here this morning, and verse number 6, Exodus 34, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And let us, like Moses, bow our heads together this morning as we come before the Lord in his holy word. Lord, Lord, you are merciful and gracious. And praise your name, you are slow to anger. And we have found abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness through Jesus Christ, who has become for us your expression of steadfast love. Father, we lift him up before us this morning. As we behold you by faith in the Spirit, in the Word of God this morning, we pray that every heart in the hearing of this message will be moved towards righteousness, moved towards you in love. And Father, we pray for your help this morning, and I pray for your help as we proclaim the Word of God together, that you would draw us then close to this heart that is full of compassion, visiting forgiveness upon thousands. Oh, Father, may this time be sacred for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to another Old Testament passage later on in your Bibles to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not 
when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south, Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Job, here in this passage, is seeking an answer to the question, of how can I be righteous before a righteous God? He describes the very nature of God as being righteous. And this is a question that everyone on earth who considers God and and really every religion on earth seeks to answer. How can we set things aright? Job reveals his understanding that God is is so righteous, which is really a redundancy to say, but that God is righteous and that there is nothing that man can ever do that will help him evade punishment and then acquire blessing. There's nothing that man can do because God is righteous. Righteousness is something that God is. It is what he is. That is a very profound statement for us to consider. It is what God is. God is righteous. And there's no way for us to attain that type of righteousness, that full degree, that pure righteousness, by our own mere human effort. Coming back then to Exodus 34 with Moses, Moses was meeting with God there on the top of the mountain. And God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And he revealed a character that is full of mercy and grace. Go ahead and turn back to that passage. We'll be referring to it. As a matter of fact, the first words as God breaks his silence there in those moments, the Lord, Lord is a God merciful and gracious. And so God responds and and initiates the, the dialogue with revealing a character that is full of mercy and grace, and then continues to describe the type of mercy and grace that comes towards us as a patient and loyal love, full of compassion, and indeed 
forgiveness. And that is how many people see God. And it is good that we see God that way, because indeed God is the self-revelator. He revealed himself to Moses and thusly to us as a God full of compassion and full of grace and mercy. But if this is the only way we see God, then we are seeing him to be, like, let's illustrate it this way, like a housekeeper, like a cleaner. No doubt you have stayed in a, in a place such as a hotel or a resort, and, and daily you receive housekeeping, and, and often you uh, will see and you will find just a pleasure in, re, in knowing that the place has become sterile and it's clean. I remember Jennifer and I traveling across country when we moved from New Hampshire to Colorado in 2002 stayed at a Motel 6. The light was on for us. And I think it attracted all the bugs uh, into our room as well. And it was too late to change things, and I think we might have tried to request something, but one room was as good as another at a Motel 6. It was, in many ways, disgusting because of the insects that had crawled underneath the door and had become part of our occupancy in that room. None of us enjoy a housekeeping service that merely takes, that takes dirt and bugs and debris and just shoves it under the bed or under the rug. But many people view God in this way, that he's sort of a divine housekeeper, that in order to tidy things up, because he's a loving and compassionate God full of mercy and grace, that he merely takes sin, takes the oopsies of our lives, takes the failures, takes the brokenness, takes the lovelessness, and he just merely sweeps it under the rug and sort of just looks at us and looks at the world through this lens of great love and mercy and grace. But if that is the only way we see him, then we're dealing with a major problem because we wouldn't stand for that with our housekeeper in our hotel room. So why would we stand for that with something far more serious regarding God and sin? What should the housekeeper do? Well, we recognize the housekeeper should solve the problem. And so I remember, actually, when we went to the, um, the front desk, and essentially the answer was given to us that one room, they admitted, one room was like the next that the seal under the doors was not keeping the cockroaches and the other bugs with the lights on for us from crawling into our room. Well, all that they can do is maintain the problem without any thought of remedy, and really that's how many people in this world view God, that he's maintaining a problem and sort of sweeping things underneath without addressing the real issue, because he's a loving God. So he's just going to overlook. He's just going to pretend like it's not there. And so that view may hold that since it may take then this, what's really fueling this idea is that they see God as so loving that he cannot, and in fact should not, because of his love, punish sin. Because that wouldn't be consistent with his loving character. And so they say that God's love and God's justice are in direct opposition to one another and that surely God's love should supersede 
or win the day for sinners because this God is so full of love that, of course, he's going to overlook sin. Of course, he's going to sweep it away. Well, God is loving and God is just. But the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 89, 14, that the righteousness and justice of God are the foundation of the throne of God. Let me say that again. The righteousness and justice of God are the foundation of the throne of God. So this morning, we're looking at this second truth of the whole gospel, and that is that God is creator, but that he is the modifier. He is and must be a righteous creator. And this is good news. God's righteousness means that God has an unwavering commitment to his own holy standard. He conforms to himself. When God acts in a holy way, he merely is exhibiting or expressing what is already within him. He is He is overflowing in righteousness. It is being acted out. God acts consistently with his own character. God doesn't just act righteous. He is righteous. There is no other way for God to act. He cannot act in any other way. It is contradictory or it is inconsistent for God to act in any other way than purely and wholly righteous. And so it's important for us to understand that righteousness is not something that God does, although he does, out of him does flow righteousness, but firstly and supremely, God is righteous. It is what God is. He is holy, thoroughly the righteous one. Also, righteousness is not only something that God has, but firstly and before it is something that God has, It is what he is. That is to say, righteousness is not something that God has as if it's a commodity. The psalmist says in Psalm 97, 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. Righteousness. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. Isaiah 11, 5, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And so the primary words which the Bible writers use to talk about righteousness is, are two words. That is being straight, that is in a physical way, something that is straight. It is not crooked. Then also, along with it, is then not only in the physical way of being straight, but in the moral degree, in the moral realm of being right. And so righteousness is conforming to a standard in a moral way. It is being and doing what is right. And so if one was to live righteously, that means that they live up to the straight and right way. They have met the obligations. And so this righteousness of God is not external. You see, God has not set up a righteous law and then said, I'm going to be like that. He has not set up a code or the Ten Commandments or, and then said, that's how I'm, I'm going to act. The righteousness of God is not external. God is not setting up a standard and then trying to measure up to it. He is thoroughly, and he is, he is 
righteous. It is intrinsically in his nature. He merely holds himself to himself. And God is never concerned to glorify himself in all that he does, and his righteousness tells us that. He is ever concerned to do that. He is glorifying himself in the way in which he manifests his righteousness. His righteousness is always consistent with his glorifying himself and nothing less. And so we, as God's created beings, are bound to conform unto this holy law. This is where Genesis 3 comes into play. In our Bibles, we see that this righteous one has said this world will be righteous, it will conform, and when it doesn't, it has failed righteousness. It has failed to meet the obligations. And chiefly, what was happening in the garden between Adam and Eve and God was that they had failed to conform to God, to his holy standard. And so mankind must be drawn, must be commanded unto following after the righteousness of God. We ought to be glad to know that God is righteous. It is a terrifying thing for us as sinners to hear that God is righteous. It is altogether even condemning to us to hear. But it is one thing to know that God is all-powerful and that God is sovereign and that there are no parallels or peers with his ruling, that God is absolutely sovereign. But it is something more indeed to know that God is that he rules and does everything that he desires to do, everything that he wants to do, but that in all of them is righteousness. This must be. This must be. In all of the, all of the inequities and in all of the brokenness of this cursed world and in all of the ways in which we see God exercising patience towards evil and wicked people in all this world and all of the afflictions that come upon even those who are hidden in Christ, our physical ailments, the griefs of our life, the losses, in all of this, we, it is necessary for us to know that God is just and that he is always doing what is right and they cannot do anything that is not right or unrighteous. Zephaniah 3, 5, the prophet says, the just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. And so the lordship of God, the sovereignty of God is founded. It is established. It is grounded upon his righteousness. God remains forever righteous. And to say that he is perfectly righteous is redundant. To say that he is perfectly righteous is really a redundancy. And this is why the picture of God sweeping dirt under a rug doesn't satisfy us as an illustration of God's righteousness. Returning back to our text here, we see as Moses meets with God, and this, this first part of this passage seems to be the typical American view of God, that he is loving and that he just sweeps sin underneath the rug. He just passes over it. It doesn't really, he, he just looks the other way. The verse continues on. In the middle of verse number seven, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Who will by no means 
clear the guilty. Now, with all the modifiers, all the descriptors, verses 6 and 7, we see he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, he keeps steadfast love for thousands, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will not clear the guilty. And so he will not just shove sin under the rug. He will not just ignore sin. He's not a hapless housekeeper trying to just get by. He's not even hiding the problem that there is dirt in the house. And so when we see that picture in the Bible, we may tend to believe that God is, that knowing God is righteous and that he will act out his righteousness and justice upon the wicked, we may feel some sort of vindication, satisfaction. We may breathe out and say, I'm really glad that God is righteous and that he is just and that he really will vindicate himself. He really will vindicate the righteous and he really will crush the wicked and the evil and he will deal with sin. And so we breathe out. And we know that there's bad guys in the world. And we know that they totally deserve God's righteous judgment. Guys like Hamas and Hezbollah. You know, the wicked men and women all around the world who terrorize and make victims of powerless with their, within their reach. Well, we want God to come down, and we want him to come down with fury and wrath and unleash terrifying judgment upon them. And so we hear at least the first proclamation that God is righteous, and we breathe out, and we say, we are glad. We know the end of the story. The evil will be punished. And we don't want a God who's impervious to evil. We don't want a God who's the hapless housekeeper. We don't want a God who's indifferent towards those who are wicked. But what we want is for God to go get them while passing over us. And the human nature is that we want God to pass by and overlook our sin in order to get the bad guys. We just want God to overlook our sin. We want God to keep sweeping and under the rug. But to do so would be in contradiction to his very nature. God cannot contradict himself, and he has promised and declared that he never will. And this is that declaration from God himself in verse 6. The Lord. And if you missed it, the Lord. This is who we're speaking of, God says. Is this sort of God. And because God established his throne on righteousness, because his throne is established and founded on righteousness, then because of that, he has to deal, he has to legislate and rule this universe through righteousness. So his sovereignty and his righteousness, his sovereignty is is founded upon his righteousness. He isn't a God who's all-powerful who doesn't know what he's doing. But he's a God who is all-powerful, who is supremely and primarily righteous, holy. So his sovereignty is measured out in the way he deals with sin. So out of his throne comes his legislation of his righteousness, and he's going to deal with sin, 
as one who has all power. And all of it, all of his power, and the full measure of his righteousness, and the full measure of his righteous perfections will be executed through pure and holy justice without bias. He will rule from this throne without any peers, and he will reign from this throne with all purity. And all purity in how he deals with you. And all purity in how he deals with sin. And all purity in how he deals with every part of your life and my life. And every person in this world. And every situation in this world. And every power in this world. He will deal with without bias by his righteous sovereign power. And even in the inequities, even in the unfairness, even in the victimization of the righteous, God is righteous and maintains his righteousness in his sovereignty towards you and I. As we move along in this series of the whole gospel, we will be seeing in the scripture in our next sermon, then in contrast, if this is how righteous God is, we will see in contrast just how unrighteous we are. And we'll be looking at that great need that we have for God's righteousness, that we desperately need that. Notice, by the way, as Moses says in verse number nine, as his head is in the dirt, he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses sees the righteousness of God. It is not until you see the righteousness of God that you understand more fully how unrighteous you are. And so we'll be looking the next truths of this, of how unrighteous and how sinful we are. But today we are left with this truth to apply to our hearts. Listen, the God who is loving, the God who is compassionate, and by the way, has no peers in the measure and degree and the perfections in which he is loving and is compassionate, this God is righteous. And that is very, very good news. In fact, it's the best news that God is righteous. And because God is righteous, he will deal with sin the right way. He will deal with sin the right way. Recently, I got hooked on a true crime podcast. And I went on a podcast binge and listened, I think, 30 episodes of this story. And it was really a a podcast that turned into investigation, that turned into a court case. And it seemed that everything had been wrapped up so that there was a murderer, a true murderer on trial. And at the end of the story, he was declared innocent. And every listener of this podcast is shouting at their earbuds and shouting at their screens saying, but he's guilty and we know it, and he knows it, and his attorney knows it, and we see that in our world, sin is not always dealt with the right way. But because God is righteous, he will not miss 
a single sin and dealing with sin, any sin and all sin, in the righteous way. We can set our trust in that. We can know that in every way that God deals with us, that he is perfectly, sovereignly, wisely, purely, lovingly, compassionately treating us as we should be treated. God never mistreats a single person whom he has created. And he is not mistreating you, and that thought has never even entered into his mind to mistreat any of his image bearers. And so he will always deal with us in the way in which we deserve to be dealt with, whether on the cross, through Jesus Christ, in his imputed righteousness, or on that fateful day when the, belie- when the unbelieving heart is condemned to a godless eternity, God will deal with every single one of his image bearers in the way in which they deserve to be treated. Because he is righteous and he cannot contradict himself. This is our God. And he is both righteous and he is the one who created us. And he is the righteous creator of whom we have to reckon with. And Moses quickly, verse 8, he quickly, that is by reaction, bows his head towards the earth and worships and pleads for mercy and favor on the ground of God's character. He is the righteous creator. Do you have hope? Do you have trust? Do you have faith in a righteous God? Has God defined himself clearly to you in the scriptures? And have you set your faith, your belief, your hope in who God has revealed himself to be? Or have you concocted? Have you come up with some sort of straw man God where you have taken parts of God's revelatory nature, parts of God's attributes, part of who he is, and said, that is who he is, and that's who I'm going to hold him to be without seeing the whole of who he is. Christian, do you hope in a righteous creator? Do you trust in that God? Well, the whole gospel begins with this truth from the word of God. God is a righteous creator. Let's pray.